Welcome to the Football Pink podcast, hosted by Roddy Cairns. The Football Pink is a website, magazine and documentary podcast series bringing you long-form stories and nostalgia from across the world of football. Over the years, many teams have been defined by their footballing style, with catchy monikers acting as useful bookmarks to an era of revolutionary tactics or unprecedented success. AC Milan had Catenaccio, Ajax had Total Votball, and Barcelona had Tiki Taka. But what of football's lesser lights? How could they ever hope to gain infamy for a particular style of play? Well, the answer involves one Welshman, one baseball cap, and one club in the Potteries. This is the story of how Stoke City barged their way to the upper echelons of the English game. This is the story of Pulis Ball. Rory de Lapp's famous long throw caused Bedlam and Stoke scored 18 goals directly from them during the Pulis Ball years. When Pulis Ball was good, it was exhilarating. When it was bad, it was awful. But you could never say it was boring. It's safe to say that Stoke City was not always the most glamorous of clubs. Although the club has a proud history as a founder member of the Football League, and as the club which gave the world Stanley Matthews, it had often found itself left out of the big prizes, and switching between promotion battles and relegation fights over the years, with the only major trophy to ever grace the Potteries Club being the 1971-72 League Cup. The turn of the millennium, though, started to see a wind of change in Staffordshire, In 1997, the club departed its historic Victoria ground after 119 years to set up shop at a brand new, purpose-built ground, the Britannia Stadium. A couple of years later, there would be change in the boardroom too, with an Icelandic consortium taking a 66% stake in the club and making Stoke the first Icelandic-owned football club outside of Iceland. The Icelandic theme would be continued with the appointment of Gudjon Thordarsson as manager, the first manager the club had ever had from outside the British Isles. Thorderson achieved his stated goal of promotion from the third tier to the second and won the Football League trophy for good measure, but that wasn't enough to satisfy his fellow Icelander, Gunnar Gislason, with the chairman dispensing with Thorderson's services almost as soon as promotion was secured. His replacement, Steve Cotterill, lasted only a matter of months before resigning in October 2002. Next in the hot seat was a certain Welshman by the name of Anthony Pulis. Football Pink contributor and Stoke City fan Dave Proudlove gives the lowdown on the new manager. During a solid playing career that took in spells with Bristol Rovers, Bournemouth and the Hong Kong League side Happy Valley, Pulis always seemed to have an eye for a later move into management, taking his UEFA licence when he was just 21. He then took the plunge into management of Bournemouth at the tender age of 34, taking over from Harry Redknapp when he left to take the West Ham job. Shorn of the financial support which had seen Redknapp's side push for promotion to the top flight, Pulis's comparably cheaper squad could only manage consecutive 17th place finishes in the second tier before he walked away citing financial pressures. His next stop was Gillingham, another club he played for. The Gills were one of the worst teams in the entire football league when Pulis took over, but he led them to promotion in his first season and almost repeated the trick before succumbing to Manchester City on penalties in the second division playoff final. 
His next port of call was Bristol City, where his previous affiliation to Rovers made him an unpopular appointment. He then ambled on to Portsmouth, where he'd last only nine months before again getting the bullet. Remarkably, Pulis ended up suing both Bristol City and Portsmouth in the aftermath of his sackings for both those clubs. It's safe to say that Pulis's managerial career up to 2002 had been eventful and not always successful, a fact reflected by him spending two years out of work after he left Pompey, although to be fair, he was probably busy in court for much of that time. Pulis only got the Stoke job in November 2002 after first-choice George Burley decided at the last minute that he wouldn't take the gig. And it's safe to say not everyone was convinced by the appointment, as Football Pink editor Graham Hollingsworth explains. The BBC Sport website ran a piece asking fans whether Stoke had got the right man, and the responses showed Stoke fans and neutrals weren't exactly bowled over. Glenn Harrell in Canada said, As a Stoke fan, you start to get used to bad news and disappointment. This really is too much. Stoke City deserved much better than this. Potts in Stafford was even more damning, saying, As a Stokey all my life, I am gutted with the appointment. Pulis is without doubt the last person I would have wanted to manage my beloved team. Andy in Bristol said, quite simply, that Poulos is the worst football manager in the entire world. If this lot were to be believed, it didn't seem like the Potters had pulled off much of a coup. The team that Poulos inherited were smack bang in a relegation battle, and looked like a quick return to the second division, or what is now known as League One, was on the cards. However, with the aid of new signing Adiak and Bailly, Poulos managed to drag Stoke kicking and screaming to safety. The decisive match was a 1-0 final day win over Reading, Akinbayi scoring the goal in a typically tight affair. The Potters would improve significantly the following season, finishing in a comfortable 11th place. However, it was a familiar story in the Pulis tale, as he clashed with the board over financial issues, the lack of funds for new signing and the sale of star striker Akinbayi to Burnley causing eruption. Eventually, it all got too much for the relationship to bear, with Pulis getting his marching orders in June 2005. After his time at Stoke, Pulis spent a fruitful season at Plymouth Argyle, rejuvenating a struggling team into one that could compete in the Championship, with the signs looking good that he could start to build a successful side at Home Park. However, the Devonian fans would never get to see the Pulis revolution come to full fruition, as after just one season in the Southwest, he was on his way again. Pulis's destination was, somewhat surprisingly, the club which had sacked him less than a year earlier. Peter Coates had purchased the club from its Icelandic owners and had wasted no time in dispensing with manager Johan Boskamp. He must have liked what he saw in Pulis's first spell at the club as he went straight out and got the Welshman to lead the on-field project. Unlike in his previous jobs, this time Pulis had a board that was willing to back him by making new signings, with players such as Danny Higginbottom, Ricardo Fuller and Rory Dillat pitching up at the Britannia. Safe to say, we'd hear those names a few more times over the coming years. With a revamped squad and an energised Pulis, Stoke rose as high as fourth in the table and were in contention for the playoffs, although a draw on the last day of the season saw them finish eighth. It may have been a disappointment, but it was a signal of a club that was going places for the first time in a while. The fans would only have to wait one more year to see that promise come to glorious fruition. The 2007-2008 season would be a historic one for the Potters as they secured promotion to the top flight for the first time in 23 years. They had to wait until the last day of the season to do it though, and in typical fashion the deed was sealed by a gritty 0-0 draw against Leicester. 
It was probably an appropriate way for Pulis and his team to achieve a historic feat, as a swashbuckling 5-0 win would have felt a bit off-brand. For Pulis, the difference between his first and second spells at the club couldn't have been starker, and he was clear that there was one man who deserved the credit for that, Chairman Peter Coates. On achieving promotion, Pulis singled out Coates for special praise. I have to say a special thank you to the chairman, he said in his post-match interview. Last time I was here, I got criticised on a budget that was a bottom three budget and there was no way I was going to come back unless he gave me the chance to compete. He said I would be able to compete and he's kept his word. Everything he said and promised he has been true to. This is a great day for this club and an opportunity for us to build and push on for next year. The big question was whether they would push on at all. How would Stoke City, the modest club from unfashionable Staffordshire, compete with the mega-rich clubs of the world's wealthiest league? Sixteenth of August, two thousand and eight, Bolton Wanderers three, Stoke City one. It was Stoke's first top-flight fixture in twenty-three years, and it turned out to be a bit of a disaster. Bolton were the house that Sam built, and something of a prototype for Stoke to follow. While legendary Trotters manager Sam Allardyce had departed for Newcastle and then Blackburn Rovers by the time his former club beat Stoke. He had shown with Bolton what an unfancied club from north of Watford could achieve in the top flight through a mixture of grit and canny signings, and under current gaffer Gary Megson, they were continuing with that blueprint. Losing to them was evidence that Stoke remained the apprentices of this genre, but also gave them a taste of what they might become. The day after the Bolton loss, bookie Paddy Power paid out on all bets on Stoke to be relegated. That decision would look less than wise nine months later, on 16th of May 2009. Stoke City beat Wigan Athletic 2-0 in their final home game of the season. Tony Pulis had led them to a comfortable 12th place finish, and supporters were enjoying free ice cream in the early summer sun, given out by Paddy Power as an apology for writing their team off. Stoke had survived, and they had survived comfortably, and Pulis Ball was undoubtedly the reason. But what was Pulis Ball anyway? While Pulis had long been known for his team's energetic and less than silky playing style, Pulis Ball as we know it originated from a discussion that the man from Newport had with Sir Alex Ferguson around how Stoke might survive in the Premier League. From that discussion, Tony Pulis developed a plan based around four key principles. Firstly, Pulis made the Britannia Stadium a fortress. He instructed the ground staff to leave the playing surface long to make life harder for footballing teams and had the pitch shortened to the minimum allowable dimensions in order to take advantage of a secret weapon. He pitched Stoke City as the underdog, but drew on the area's working-class culture, developing a siege mentality and getting the club's support on side who fed off that. Thus, the Britannia Stadium's bare pit atmosphere was born, while the ground's unique climate added to it. It was from this period that the now customary question of could he do it on a cold, wet Tuesday night in Stoke emerged as a way of testing a perceived overpaid show pony player's suitability to the English game. Secondly, Pulis built a squad of big players, but not necessarily big names. He valued experienced players with big characters and good professionals, fit players who put in a shift and work within the system. Thirdly, and this was a crucial part of the Pulis Ball system, he ensured that his team made the most of set pieces, and he worked his players to death on them at the Clayton Wood training ground. And then there was the fourth and final secret weapon, stumbled upon during one of Pulis' trailing sessions, Rory Delap's famous long throw. The laps throw-in caused Bedlam, and Stoke scored 18 goals directly from them during the Pulis Ball years. 
Nine of these came during that crucial first campaign, which was almost a quarter of Stoke's Premier League goals that season. Delap's throws were basically footballing chaos theory. Indeed, if there is one thing that people remember Pulis Ball by, it's Rory Delap's rockets, and they provided many highlights during the 2008-2009 season. There was Jarelio Gomez's meltdown in Tottenham Hotspur's 2-1 defeat at the Britannia Stadium, which saw the Spurs keeper lose his cool under Stoke's aerial bombardment, knocking out teammate veteran Chorluca as he attempted to punch away a Delap howitzer, and eventually breaking down in tears. Then there was the way Arsenal crumbled, something which would become a regular occurrence, conceding twice from Delap throws. The winning goal, which say Olafinjana scored with his face, was a thing of beauty. But the one incident which best sums up the fear which Delap's long throws struck into other sides came during a 1-1 draw at home to Hull City. Hull keeper Boaz Myhill, under pressure from 6'5 striker Mamadi Sidibe, chose to kick the ball out for a corner rather than concede a throw-in. Stoke would eventually spend 10 years as a Premier League side, the first five of which were with Pulis's gaffer, and the next five of which owed much to the solid foundations he had laid. Pulis Ball became part of the furniture in the top flight, with Stoke replacing Bolton Wanderers as the best-known proponents of a style of football that was seen as a throwback to a former era of English football, before the influx of foreign money and talent had turned the league into a cosmopolitan wonderland for the good and the great of the game. Pulis Ball may have been invented by a Welshman, but its presence provided a comfortable sense of Englishness to that nation's domestic fans. After orchestrating survival in that first season, Pulis and Stoke spent the next few years consolidating their position as a top-flight club and rarely looked in any real danger of relegation. Their league position remained pretty solid over the years, 12th, 11th, 13th, 14th, 13th. But their football evolved a wee bit over that time, employing exciting wingers like Jermaine Pennant and Matthew Etherington to complement the stodge of previous seasons. Don't worry though, there was still plenty for lovers of Mince and Tatty's football to enjoy, with Pulis famed for fielding a back four of essentially all centre-backs, and with the likes of gritty Irish internationals Glenn Whelan and Mark Walters being key players further up the pitch. Peak Pulis ball probably came on the 17th of April 2011, on a glorious afternoon at Wembley Stadium. Pulis's side destroyed Bolton Wanderers, beating the Trotters 5-0 to reach the FA Cup final for the first time in the club's history. It was a magnificent result and a huge win for Pulis Ball against a Wanderers side who had by then started to shed their Aladicean tendencies in favour of Owen Coyle's more hipster passing game. Pulis favourites such as Hooth and Walters were on the score sheet, but some credit must go to Stoke for their exciting wing play of Pennant and Etherington on the wide Wembley surface. The Potters went on to lose 1-0 to Manchester City in the final on their second trip to Wembley, but who knows what might have happened if Kenwyn Jones had scored when cleaned through with the scores at 0-0, because Pulis' side knew how to defend a lead. That FA Cup final appearance saw the Potters qualify for European football for the first time since the 1970s, and they didn't waste the opportunity to preach the gospel of Pulis to a continental audience. Croatian giants Hajduk Split were dispatched to seal a place in the Europa League group stages, where the Potters were drawn against Besiktas, Dinamo Kiev, and Maccabi Tel Aviv. Stoke managed to qualify from the group in second place, the highlight being a 2-1 home win against Turkish giants Besiktas, with new 10 million signing Peter Crouch netting alongside Jonathan Walters. The round of 32 saw Stoke drawn against Valencia, and the tie proved to be a bridge too far for the Potters as they lost 1-0 in both legs. 
A disappointing end, but by no means an embarrassing one against a team with such huge continental pedigree. So Pulis Ball was successful, but what was it like to watch? Was it the hellish anti-football that some would have us believe, or simply a club that had cut its cloth accordingly and was doing its best with the budget it had? Was Pulis a dinosaur who was ruining the top flight, or a canny gaffer who was defying gravity with his unfancied club? There are many ways to play the game, and Pulis's methods are as valid as those of Pep Guardiola's. When Pulis' ball was good, it was exhilarating. When it was bad, it was awful. But you could never say it was boring. You could never call a team with Ricardo Fuller in it boring. Some of the best goals I've seen Stoke City score come from the Pulis ball era. Three superb individual goals from Fuller will forever stick in my mind. The first, a Bergkamp-esque effort in the Potters' first Premier League win over Aston Villa. The second, a mazy individual goal at West Ham, which left Matthew Upson on his backside suffering from twisted blood. And the third, during a win over Birmingham City, which saw him cut in from the right and send a brilliant curling effort beyond unknown Joe Hart. Then, there was a goal which basically summed up Pulis' ball. Peter Crouch at home against Manchester City. Around the hour mark, the ball found its way back to Stoke keeper Asmir Begovic, who launched a long ball forward towards Crouch on the right, who flicked it on towards Jermaine Pennant. Pennant nodded the ball back to Crouch, who controlled it before lashing an unstoppable volley beyond Joe Hart for arguably the best goal seen at the Bet365 Stadium. Between leaving Begovic's foot and hitting the back of the net, the ball never touched the ground. Respect for Pulis and his methods was sometimes begrudging, but it could also be found in some unexpected quarters. Former Chelsea and Tottenham manager Andre Villas-Boas talked in an interview about the first time he ever met Sir Alex Ferguson at an elite club coaches forum at UEFA's HQ in Neon, Switzerland. One of Europe's upcoming coaches, meeting one of the best coaches of all time. And what did they talk about? Stoke City and their tactics under Pulis. Then there was Pep Guardiola, speaking in the aftermath of his side's FA Cup tie against Cheltenham Town, who had their own long throw merchant in the shape of captain Ben Tozer. Guardiola stated that he had heard a lot about the Tony Pulis era at Stoke and described the long throws as an incredible weapon, more dangerous than a corner. Liverpool's more recent appointment of a specialist throw-in coach could also be seen as a nod to Pulis. The respect was not necessarily universal though. One manager in particular had no problem at all with public displays of fear and loathing towards Tony Pulis and his team. That was Arsene Wenger, who moaned about the use of Rory Dillap's long throw, bleated about Pulis's exploitation of set pieces and likened Stoke to a rugby team, often when his Arsenal team fell apart at the Britannia Stadium. Pulis, his team and the club's supporters greatly enjoyed Wenger's meltdowns. The fans fed off it when the Gunners were in town, mocking Wenger's arms, outstretched protests, while bellowing swing low sweet chariot. It all generated a severe mutual dislike which still lingers to this day. Tony Pulis left Stoke City in 2013, after seven years. There was no doubt that things had stagnated a bit, with Stoke failing to improve on their 11th place finish in the 09-10 season. But his achievements in his second spell at the Britannia were impressive. Promotion to the Premier League, establishing the Potters as a top-flight fixture, reaching the final of the FA Cup and the knockout stages of the Europa League. Perhaps even more impressive is the Mark Pulis and his team left on the psyche of the Premier League, their playing style a blueprint on how to succeed with modest means and how to ruffle the feathers of the big boys. Perhaps the biggest compliment to Pulis is the fact that, eight years from his departure, there remains only one true barometer of any fancy-schmancy new player looking to make it in the English game, 
a test which has been applied to players as storied as Messi and Ibrahimovic. Could he do it on a cold, wet Tuesday night in Stoke? You have been listening to the Football Pink Podcast. For more stories like this one, please subscribe to the podcast and visit footballpink.net.